Amen. A question you think you've learned more from in your life. The people that were your foes who were against you, they teach you a lot, or the people that were in your, on your side. Yeah, Mark Twain had a great line. He said, when a person with money meets a person with experience, the person with experience walks away with the money, and the person who had the money walks away with a new experience. <laughs> and when you take a look at life and looking back, who was helpful, who wasn't in your life, and what is a disciple? I love uh, the story of the gentleman who went back to his school reunion, and uh, he saw somebody. She said, you remember me? And he said, no. And she said, well, we dated. He said, well, that's good. She said, not too good because you didn't go out again and it broke my heart. He said, well, that's bad. She said, not too bad. I met a really good-looking guy and married him. He said, well, that's good. She said, not too good because he's so mean. He said, well, that's bad. She said, well, not too bad. He built me this really big house. He said, well, that's good. She said, not too good. It burned down. He said, well, that's bad. She said, not too bad. He was in it. <laughs> well, when you look back at life, what was a good time? What was a bad time? It takes a little bit of vantage to be able to really know for sure. As we begin, as Bob did such a great job last week of telling us that discipleship is your oar in the water. Christianity is not where you slide down the happy river of life. Christianity, you and I are going against a current and your oar in the water is for your benefit, not just for the sake of others and the glory of God. And as we take a look at this wonderful thing called discipleship, no better case study is than Timothy and Paul. The word disciple, Matthias in Greek, when you translate that to the Latin, discipulus, and so in the Anglo-Saxon, disciple is a learner. A learner, an apostle is someone who is sent, like an epistle sent out there with a message. An apostle in the New Testament was someone who met the risen Christ and was commissioned by the risen Christ. That's why Paul will defend himself his whole life. When did he meet the risen Christ? It wasn't Easter morning. It was on the road to Damascus, and he was sent and commissioned. But a disciple is like in the Hebrew Talmud. Our Jewish friends from Stephen Weiss Temple will be here tonight as they begin Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And the rabbi, Eli, is a great guy. One of the compliments to a rabbi is to call him Gadol Talmudim, the best student. The highest compliment to a rabbi is not that how much you know, but that you're so teachable. And likewise, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he says in a discipleship relationship, and this is something you need to have in your life, think how much time you have spent trying to get in shape or stay in shape so that you would enjoy life and look good. Think how much time you have spent trying, watching over your investment, both dollars, and what to do with them, to be able to get ahead. Think how much time you spend in trying to find the right person or friend in order so your life would be rich and full. The most important thing, I wanna keep saying this in the coming weeks, is finding you are both a Paul and a Timothy. You and I are a Timothy. We need to sit at the feet of somebody who can teach us something that we don't know. And a Paul is not the professional expert who knows everything, but a relationship that you're pouring your life into. And when you are in that relationship, and I would propose to you, not until you are in that kind of a relationship does God really release the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience into our life. And no greater example of that is than Paul. Well, where did Paul hook up with Timothy? 
Turn with me over to Acts and to the 16th chapter. It's on page 900 in your pew Bible. As you know, Luke, who Paul will pick up on this second missionary journey, the beloved physician, the only Gentile to write any of the scriptures, the beloved physician, uh, records this in 16.1. Paul went on to Derby and to Lystra where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. In other words, there was a mixed marriage. She's Jewish and a Christian, a Messianic Jew, but his father's a Greek, a pagan. He was well spoken of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they went from town to town, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. The rabbi Saul of Tarsus, after he meets the risen Christ, by the way, he's in Syria and Cilicia, present-day Syria. From the time of meeting Christ to beginning his real public ministry, you know how long it was? 15 years. 15 years. 14 to 17 years. God has Paul in the backwaters preparing him. The only reason I point that out is we get all excited when we come to the Lord expecting big things. God is preparing. He spends 30 years preparing his sinless son to get ready for ministry until he's 30 years old making chairs and carpentry work. And then at baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Well, Paul does three missionary journeys. He clocks in over 3,000 miles on foot, traveling through the Mediterranean, telling the good news of Christ. His first missionary journey, he went up in the present-day Turkey, Asia Minor there. And then on the second one, this map will show you where he returns. Antioch is the birthplace of us, the Gentile church. And so he will leave there, go back to Lystra. This is where he picks up Tim. Heads on over, gets the vision from the Greek boy saying, come to us, takes the gospel to Europe, to Philippineopolis, over to Thessaloniki, then he'll drop down to Berea, down to the head of intelligentsia, Athens, will go over to Corinth, which is kind of a Vegas, then go over to Ephesus, Celine played there, and stay at Ephesus, and from there he'll head back on down. Now I want you to see, Timothy's left in Ephesus, and Paul is probably over in, he might be in Rome. We don't know exactly where he is in, in writing. There's debate when they composed this. But it's at Ephesus, which is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Temple of, is gathered there, a, a goddess of fertility. And it's in this city that he's writing to him. Turn back over to Ephesians, or excuse me, Ephesians. First Timothy 1, where he's writing to Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my loyal child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is a letter between an older apostle. He's probably about my age, 58. Difference is he, he's got scars all over his body. I mean, they have bet this, beat this guy. First time he went to Lystra, they stoned him and they left him in a pool of blood for dead. He was motionless. And he's writing to his beloved Timothy. Timothy's probably in his late 20s. And it's a between an intimate relationship of a father and son in the faith. So why does he start it out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God? 
Same thing when I write a love letter to Carolyn. I go, Carolyn, from your husband and lover, pastor of Bel Air Presbyterian Church, anointed by the Presbyterian called of God, do you want to do lunch? <laughs> what he is doing is he is giving the apostolic gun to Timothy to saying, Timothy, the things I'm telling you come from Christ. And he's in a tough situation, and so he's telling him, I'm reminding you, Tim, we're not just bosom buddies here. Something bigger than us is going on. And in whomever you are discipling, it's very important that you connect them back into this river of salvation history, Heilsgeschichte in the German, this holy history that we are all connected into. And so he goes on, verse 3. I urge you as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. But the aim of such instruction is love. The aim of all instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Some people have deviated from these and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make assertions. So Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's going, Timothy, remember, all this knowledge that I'm giving to you is not just to fill your brain. It's for your love to grow. From a good conscience, we're going to find out conscience is a big thing to Paul, a sincere faith and moving ahead. And he's saying some people are into these endless discussions about non-essential dribble. Now it's fun to sit down and discuss things, you know, like the Mars rover out there. What if we find life on our planets? What if there's intelligent life in other planets? I've told you before, my search is to find intelligent life in Los Angeles, and I keep looking. As, but it's, that's fun to have those kind of discussions. But if you don't get back to what the reality, what life is about, we get in trouble. And by the way, those of us that are my age and older, when you say to someone who's younger, when I was your age, put a sock in it. Because you never were their age at this time. Saw a great New Yorker magazine the other day as a collegian talking to a little sixth grader and he said, when I was your age, computers had cords. <laughs> what are they saying? that this generation that has grown up thinking what is old and what is young and that things are moving so fast. And so when you find someone, as Paul does with Timothy, brought about, it's a relationship of cross listening to each other. Now again, this is the city that if we would have read over in Acts 12 where they beat him and leave him for dead. We didn't have time to read. Why is he on a second missionary journey with who he is? Because he had such a fight over John Mark that Barnabas, the only one to take a risk on Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, they split up. Now we'll see in 2 Timothy that John Mark is the most important person in Paul's life, almost a handful when he's on death row. But they've left, and he goes along, totally new people, same place. He left behind John Mark and Barnabas. You know who he picks up? Luke and Silas and Timothy. The closest person he'll ever have in his life. Why do I tell you that? Because there are times that God will take you and you'll be in relationships and you will disengage. Maybe back to the same job that you were at before. Maybe sometimes the same church. Maybe sometimes the same city. But with new people. Other times, 
God will say, no, you got the right dream, but you got the wrong place you're digging in the mine. You got the right dream, but you got the wrong boat. And I'm gonna be maneuvering things to, around so that I can use you in the greatest way. And so as he reminds Timothy, these are the things to look at. Now what's funny about all of us is that we don't naturally rejoice when other people are blessed. When someone wins the lotto, do you go, I am so happy for them? No, when someone else gets that promotion, when someone else gets the attention, when someone else gets their flat tire on the right place on the freeway and they get the opportunity that you've been working for your whole life, they get that movie that's made, the idea you always had, they get that promotion, they invent that thing, they write that novel that you always had in your mind, the scripture tells us we're different than the world. As Bob was telling us last week, you learn to drive on the other side of the road rather than going, oh, you go good. But that's not a usual response without the Holy Spirit. I was uh, the only white member of the Black Ministerial Alliance uh, in Denver and in Detroit, and I'll never forget one of uh, the pastors had a great line when one of their pastors, was, his church was growing and the other pastors were mad. He said, well, man, that brother's got a crab mentality. I said, what's a crab mentality? You mean he's grumpy? He said, no, no. Fishermen will say if you take a barrel and you put crabs in them, you don't need to put a lid on them. Because if one tries to crawl out, the others instinctively hold on to it so it can't get out. You don't need to hold them. They hold themselves back. And very often, we hold each other back because we're so afraid somebody's going to get a little piece of the plate that we don't get. And Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, find people we're going to find out, and your joy should be in coaching them to a better game than you ever played. Like they say, if you can't win the race, make the person in front of you set a world record. You know, you do it so well that others might do it better than you, but it's because of your encouragement. And sometimes you have people that are stunningly immature. I had a dinner last week with a female who I'm sure she has a great heart, but during dinner she was so mad she started screaming. She threw food and she was so mad she wet herself. She happened to be my two-month-old granddaughter. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you wondered where I was going to go with that. But you know, at two-month-olds, you give them a break, don't you? They're babies. I wouldn't feel that way if I was dining with one of you at dinner. There are some people that are really mature physically and intellectually, but they're spiritual babes. They're just infants. And you and I, rather than washing our hands of them, have to say, hey, 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 hey. Now you don't coddle them and give them their spiritual depends the rest of their life. You teach them to grow up, but you're patient with them. And that's what Paul is saying here to them. Look what he goes on and says. Verse eight. Now we know that the law, Torah, is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me. Wow, what, what is Paul saying? Our Jewish friends will be in here tonight Oh, by the way, I should tell you, I can tell you, Ailey and I laughed about this. Uh, before we got this uh, presbytron up here, this uh, screen up here, uh, they used to put up uh, a big screen, and they would put it in front of the cross, 
But the way the lights are, the cross would beam through their Jewish liturgy during the whole Rosh Hashanah thing. But it uh, looked like a Southern Baptist attack or something. But uh, they laugh about that. But, but what, as they come in tonight, uh, Happy New Year. And what they're going to wonder about you and me, the law is good. Why do you Christians not follow the law? And Paul is saying the law is good in itself if it's used in the right way. The ceremonial law is gone, but the moral and essence of the law is behind it. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by what God did with the Messiah on the cross and paying for our sin. Calvin says the law is good for three reasons. First of all, for preserving society. Do you know what's going on this morning? And we just had one of our brothers from Cairo over here with the craziness going on in the Muslim world, in the Arab world in particular. Why is it unpopping? Because democracy is an art. And they're so fearful. The democracy means you can let people say what they want, even against the prophet. And so what is taking place right now is this fear of anarchy. And do you know what's gonna happen to us in America? We are sawing off the limb we are sitting on, mark my words. Because we have taken freedom over values. Freedom, yes, is very important. But even as the founding fathers said, you can't have freedom unless you have people that have the right values. They call them manners. Otherwise, you have anarchy. And you can't have values unless you have religion. And you can't have religion unless you have freedom, not state-sponsored. And so the law is good in telling us what are the Judeo-Christian values of a society to live. But not only that, Calvin said, it's also good for reminding us of our need. If I took a glass of water and put dirt in it and stirred it up and it's all muddy and yucky, and I set it down overnight, when we came in here in the morning, that water would look pure. It looked drinkable. Unless I took a spoon and stirred it up inside. And you go, yuck. I'm a pretty good guy when things are going right. You know that? And you know, you just meet people, they're pretty nice. What could be the problem with them? And we think we're good in ourselves, but the law shows us how far we have fallen. Tomorrow, Monday morning, see how long you can go living like Christ. Say, so I want to be like Jesus today, God. Let's try it. You usually make it till you hit the 405, and then it all just falls apart. Why? Because we got this sinful thing, and the law shows us our need, but not only for preserving society and it is good and showing us our need, but Calvin says it leads us towards our need of the Savior, a spiritual compass in all cultures and anthropologies out there that will lead us towards this remarkable Savior by the name of Jesus. And so Paul is telling him that, to handle it in the right way. And he's in Ephesus. Why do I say that, keep saying that? Because he came from Lystra where he was at. Sometimes what you and I need is right there. Remember when we were studying last, had the journey through the wilderness, and Moses, the dying of dehydration in the Sinai Desert, which makes the Mojave look like Kauai, and they're standing there, and they said they need water, and God says, uh, well, uh, speak to that rock. And the water, there's an aquifer right there, but they don't know it until in God's timing. They fish all night. In the morning, some preacher says, can I borrow your boat by the name of Jesus? And Simon goes, whatever. And he goes out, and Jesus says at the end of his sermon, drop your nets here. And then he goes, uh, Rabbi, in all honor, you preach, we fish for a living. We worked here all night and caught nada. 
And Jesus obviously is just looking at him and he goes, okay, you wanna embarrass yourself? And he drops the net and almost rips out of his hands now because it's so full of fish. Same spot, same spot. Sometimes God has us in places right there. And we have tried and tried and tried, but the Lord says, let me try it right now on this time. And as we move along, how do we know where to go in life? Paul's telling Timothy, as he's on the way up north, and he's telling him, you stay down in Ephesus. Well, how does he know that? Paul's not infallible, but he's guidable by the Holy Spirit as he continues to lead him in every direction. Sometimes it's by a closed door. After high school, uh, when uh, our family had fallen apart, my father was a minister, for those of you I've never met, and ran off with a church secretary, and I did the idiot you know, late 60s party, stupid thing. Everybody has a jerk phase. You hope it's not too long. Mine was a fairly long jerk phase. And, and I was, gave my life to Christ, and I was driving a truck. Um, when you graduate from high school with a 1.2, you feel called to drive trucks, uh, as I always say. And, and uh, someone said, you know, you should go into the ministry. And I, and I got this hunger. What's it take? And they go, it only takes eight years. And I thought, I barely did 12, and six of them had a recess, you know? <laughs> but so I had had my father's brother had started out with this little company called H&R Block uh, way back in the 60s and did quite, quite well. And he had always told me, Mark, if you ever want to go to college, I'll, I'll, I'll make it possible. I said, I don't want to go to college. Uh, so and then I felt that call. Okay, I got to do this. So I called him up and said, hey, I'm going to go to college. Can you help out? He said, absolutely not. And I, I was so embarrassed that I even asked him. First of all, I never liked him anyway. <laughs> but I knew that he had money. And I risked asking for it, and he said no. And I thought, Lord. So I started a job on my own, putting myself through school, running up, you know, uh, some of the bills and starting a ministry. And because of that, and through a series of events, started a Bible study at Colorado State that grew to over 600 students. I had like a lab practical along the way to see whether I wanted to be in the ministry or not. And that never would have happened if he had been writing the bill for that tuition. Sometimes God leads by closing doors and you have no idea. Sometimes someone will give you just a word of wisdom and you'll go, wow. Woman just had her 10th baby, was laying in the hospital, and the nurse came in and said, I don't know what to call this one. And the woman in the bed next to her said, I'd call it quits if I were you. That's what I do. <laughs> Sometimes if someone says, you know, okay, enough is enough, all right? And Paul is telling him, in this, you got to have a, do you have, first of all, a teachable spirit? Do you have that sense of being able to have a learning potential? And do you have this teaching potential where it flows through you? In the Middle East, there's a big body of water that has no outlet. It's called the Dead Sea. And if the only thing you and I do in our lives is we just suck up all this wonder and we're just living for ourselves and we're not giving it to somebody else, you are as dead as the Dead Sea in a matter of time. Mark my words. What we need, what we are made for, is not being the brilliant professional expert, but at what we do know, finding somebody and loving them and helping them out. And that's exactly what God is doing through Paul to Timothy at this place. So look what he says going on. We saw in verse 12. 
I'm grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and a man of violence. Pause, what does he mean a blasphemer? Because Paul was running around saying Jesus is a lie. The son of God is a sham. The first martyr in the church, Stephen's blood, was spilled in the presence of the rabbi Saul of Tarsus, Paul, as he orchestrated his death. He was running around throwing women and children who were professing and men into prison. And you don't get thrown into a prison in the first century. You did, half of them didn't make it to trial. You died in those holes in the ground. And Paul would never forget, would never forget what he had done. In fact, when he meets the risen Christ, what does Jesus say? And Paul wasn't saying anything we have recorded against Jesus, but against his followers. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. And so he would say, I was this way. Why is he telling Timothy this? It goes on. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save the world of whom I am the worst, the chief, the foremost. But for that very reason I received mercy so that me as the foremost sinner, Jesus might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. And then he erupts into this praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. When Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, he's not playing humble and he's not doing hyperbole like we preachers do. He's talking with description. Do you know why? Because he is so close to Christ, he sees his own flaws. You know when the lights go down, I look pretty good. I just wanna tell you that. When the lights come up, it's a whole different story. And the closer we get, to the, not just the neon lights of the presence of the living Christ, but the spiritual MRI of looking where we are inside, we go like, oh my goodness. And he is not bragging about his sin, and he's not asking for pity. He's saying, Timothy, I was a chief, I was, by the way, ignorant. That doesn't give me a pass. Sincerity does not mean innocence. There are a lot of people today who sincerely believe that we are wacky for being in here. Some of them don't know better. Some are sincere through a series of processes of convincing themselves this dare not be true. And they could pass a lie detector saying that the gospel is a lie. That doesn't mean they're innocent. It means they're sincere. And Paul said, I was acting in unbelief. I was ignorance. Ignosis, no knowledge of that. But God showed his mercy to me. And so when you were with your discipling relationship, both as the discipler and the disciple e, You don't say, I've got it all together and I used to sin. And this is what's so important, if I might, wrapping up, tell you that I shouldn't preach what I know, I should preach what I'm learning. And they always tell you that. And you should be teaching not what you know, you should be teaching what you're learning because it's still exciting to you and it's new stuff and the Lord is always doing a new thing. And when you are in that relationship, and it's a two-way, the discipler learns from the disciplee in many things. And we'll see this in this book. 
but as the Holy Spirit himself who continues to teach on. And so finally, wrapping up 18, I'm giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, having faith in a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, that's a nice little description, isn't it? Turning them over to Satan, what does that mean? You're either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. There is no kingdom of gray. And these are two men that we'll find out in 2 Timothy that have professed Christ, but now they're saying, nah, there's no rest. It's kind of a nascent Gnosticism going on where they just believe that the spiritual was the real stuff. Turn him over to Satan doesn't say, Satan beat him up. It's like, until you learn how crazy you are. And one of the tougher prayers to pray for people is the apple of this world that they're biting that it sours in their mouth. That's a tough prayer. But if you love them and you care about them, you pray that way. Not, oh, good when it happens, but may they come back. And he is saying, Timothy, your conscience. Now, your conscience never tells you what is right. It tells you, do right, do right, do right, do right. You have to educate what's right and wrong. Some of us have such overinflated consciences, we feel guilty for everything. We feel guilty for the national debt. I'm so sorry. We feel guilty that there's pollution in the world. We feel guilty for everything. Well, we need to get a healthy conscience. No. Some of us, though, what Paul's afraid of, have so destroyed our conscience that do right, do right, and rather than saying what is right, we went, there is no right. There is no right. It's not that we don't have the software. We don't have the hardware anymore for God to be able to speak and for us to hear. That's a slowly like the rheostat, turning the lights down off and there's darkness. And God calls, but people can't hear anymore. And so Paul's saying, Tim, 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 Tim. You follow your heart, you follow your conscience, and you realize it's by God's grace that we're all sinners. I'm I'm a worse sinner than you, Tim. It's not a contest. But as you find out in these relationships, One of the great examples in 1181, a young boy was born in Assisi by the name, and later would be called the little Frenchman, Francis. Francis had an extremely wealthy father, as you know, and he was raised to be a commander in the military. He was captured as a POW on one of the wars between the cities in Tuscany, and he got out and he had this huge religious experience. His father was very wealthy, and he wanted to start, and he heard God say, build my church. And he thought he meant there was a physical church that he started working on. But Francis fell in love with the Lord, and his father said, you're throwing it all away, and you owe me. And remember that true story. He stood in this town square, took his clothes off, handed them to his father, and walked away butt naked saying, I owe you nothing. And the neighbors went, he's an odd boy, he's an odd boy. But what he had, his whole thing was the, the freedom of not owning things. Probably his greatest mentor relationship was not with his followers in his order, but with Claire. Claire was raised wealthy herself, but she was a female, and she heard of this teaching of Francis. She wanted to join, and he said, no woman can join this order. But Claire will figure out as a woman who in an extremely paternalistic, chauvinistic world of the 12th century will find a way to serve God with the goals that Francis had, but free in her way to serve to the ladies. And it's in that relationship of mentoring each other 
I don't agree with everything that Francis said, but he did have an amazing faith. Do you know if you followed with Francis tonight, but when you went to bed, every dollar you owned you had to give away before you go to bed. You had to find somebody poor and give away everything you own. So that when you woke up in the morning, you were totally dependent on God. Not to beg, they were kind of like day laborers. They'd go out and earn their money. But when you made that money, you went home and you didn't go to bed till you got rid of every dollar in your wallet to somebody else. Now, I don't agree with that, but I'm impressed with that. One of the great stories, though, that Francis had was a, he had this aversion and repulsion of lepers. Leprosy, they were so fearful of leprosy. Not all leprosy is contagious, but there are some strains that were. But why a leper is so disfigured and they lose their arms and limbs, it kills the nerves. You can't feel anymore. So you can burn yourself and not know it. You can break your wrist and not know it. And that's why they're so disfigured at times. And by law, you had to have a bell around your neck and yell leper. And if you came within 100 feet of somebody, you could be killed. You had to live in the leper colony. And Francis was ministering to everybody, the poor and the outcast, but he just couldn't handle lepers because they were so hideous and they smelled so bad. And stories told that a leper was walking on the side of the street and he felt the Lord say, go hug him. And he said, I am not going to hug a leper. He said, go hug him. And so he went running over, and he said, my brother in the Lord. And he hugged this hideous figure. And he said when he stepped back, he saw the face of Christ. What I think he saw was not that Christ was the leper, but I think he saw Christ in this person in such a way. And that's what discipleship is. That when you can see beyond all the scars and all the smells of this world and all the brokenness and to see Christ in them. You know who was set free that day? It wasn't the leper. It was Francis. And as you and I practice what he calls the sacral commercium, the exchange, your life for his. And the vita fratres, the living friendship, one that is alive, God releases power in our life. Why do you worry about what you need to eat and what you need to drink? Look at the birds of the air. They do not gather seed, plant it, store it in a barn, and yet your heavenly Father takes care of them. Are you not more of value than a bird? And why do you worry about what you need to wear? Look at the lilies of the field. I tell you, even Shlomo, Solomon, in all of his glory was not clothed as one of these. Flowers that are here today, gone tomorrow, burned up in the oven. How little is your faith? So do not seek after these things what the Gentiles do, but you seek the kingdom of God and all of its righteousness. And I'll throw the rest of it in. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the relationships that you have called us to, God, for the different stages we're at spiritually. And if there are any in this room, Lord, that have not really ever connected with you, and they don't understand it all, but then been aware of that voice that's been tugging at their heart, you don't need to memorize the Bible or do 100 push-ups. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens, I will come in and live with them and they with me. You simply need to say, Christ, I believe, when you hung on that cross and died, my face was on your heart. The Lord, you paid for every of the dumb things I've done and that you're alive. Lord, I don't understand it all, but I invite you to come and take over my life. And you do that, and right now, you'll start a relationship that will last forever. So Lord, thank you that we can come to you with our tithes and our offerings. 
that we can give to you, Lord, what you have loaned to us, that others might hear the good news of Christ. Bless the gift and the giver alike. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.